Good morning. Let's begin on a earlier note than what we've done here for the last couple of months. Let's get going this morning. In Romans chapter 12, looking at verses 1 through 21 in this overview of the book as we're getting ready to close up here, acceptable, the living sacrifice, Paul begins by writing to the church at Rome and telling them the fullness of the gospel, a gospel that he says that he is not ashamed of, but instead is eagerly obliged A gospel that is the very power of God unto salvation. The wrath of God revealed against men. The righteousness of God revealed in making propitiation for His people. Ransoming us back to Himself. Purchasing our lives with the very lifeblood of Christ. This is the heart of the good news. That this God is not only just, but that He is justifier. That Abraham, our father by faith, believed God, and in believing it was reckoned to him as something greater than belief, but was reckoned to him as righteousness, the very power of God on display. Faith becoming more than faith. And having been justified through faith, We rejoice, we literally boast in the hope of God. For friends, we were were dead. Make no mistake about it, we weren't sick. (laughs) We were dead. Born in the image of a dead man. Born in the image of Adam, from dust we came and to dust we would return, but in Christ we live. Because in Christ we have died. We have a profound identity where by baptism of the Holy Spirit we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ in order that we may be risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life. Life from death. God calling into existence that which did not previously exist. And as we're going to see today, not just calling anything into existence, but calling a living being into existence. All by the power of the Holy Spirit, men are enslaved to their own being. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you, however... If you are in God, have a new being, a being that can please God. In the very next breath, Paul says in chapter 8, verse 9, that you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact, and here's the deciding factor, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, the deciding factor, the agent of the new creation is not of men. It's of God. You are this if the Spirit dwells in you. And if He does, once again, and I, and I, I will tell you guys right here, maybe I'm getting a little nostalgic, but I, I'll miss when, when we get done with this deal where we're doing the same review every week and we finish up. I will really miss this part. I enjoy this part every week. 
Therefore, we can believe the most audacious of things. That if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, all things work for good. And man, what that'll make you is strong and tough. All things work for good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so the question this morning is, are you indwelled by the Spirit of God? Well, how do I know if I'm indwelled by the Spirit of God so that I can know that all things work for good? And the answer to that is, are you called? Well, how do I know if I'm called? Do you love him? Not just the things he gives you. Do you love him for him? If you do, friend, you may have some hard days. You'll never have a bad one. We are called not for just any purpose. Paul teaches us in Romans that we are called according to the very purpose of God. For salvation belongs to the Lord. In Romans chapter 9, verse 16, he says, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Friends, we worship a God that is free. And we worship a God who is good. He is bound by nothing. He, can, he literally writes the book on righteousness. All his ways are justice. Not that he's simply just in all his ways. But all his ways are definitively justice. He is free. He can do whatever he wants. And what does he offer even to his enemies, good news. Gospel. It belongs to him. He can give it to whoever he wants. And he offers it freely to any who will come. And yet... He has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he will. And he doesn't apologize for it. Because you see, men are dead. And if God does not have mercy to bring about the effectualness of the gospel, men who are freely offered life will reject it at every turn. And those same men, out of the arrogance of their own heart, will raise up and accuse God then and say, is there injustice on God's part? And Paul doesn't simply say that's not the way it works. He says that is not what God is being. That is not who He is. It's a fallacious question. For all His ways are justice. And God's ways define what justice is. The good news is this, that our God 
is a God in which mercy and compassion are not opposed to the justice of God, but mercy and compassion are part and partial to God's justice to the point that if you teach a form of justice that does not include the sovereign mercy and compassion of God, you are not teaching who God is. Our God will not be accused. Instead, he will be glorified. He'll be glorified for his wrath. He'll be glorified for his mercy. For concerning the glory of God and salvation, we see the heart of Jesus Christ being displayed in the apostle when Paul's heart breaks for the lostness of his brothers. Those men who, lacking the intimacy of salvation and lacking the understanding that that we were, I was doing my best to get across to our third and fourth graders this morning. That guys, listen, you don't come to Jesus for the things He'll do for you, man. And praise God, He does a lot of stuff for you. But you come to Jesus for Jesus and nothing else. Lacking that intimacy, they establish a system. They put a label on it. They called it law. But the word tells us that God's glory is not in man's law. That God's glory is in the word of faith. Not the word of faith movement, but the actual word of faith. The one that's in you because the spirit dwells in you. That's in your heart, he says, and in your mouth. For if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And what must be the thing that we believe and confess? Not simply that Jesus is God, even the demons will confess that. But that Jesus is Lord. That his is the might, that his is the power, that he is our master. For as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10 verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, not just on the name of God, but on the name of the Lord, will be saved. With with such assurance we are bold in our evangelism. We understand the difference between means and cause. That God has seen fit in his goodness to use men, to use women, to use little boys and little girls to proclaim the goodness of his gospel. But we understand that even though he has been so good as to allow us to be part and partial to his means that the reality is is that the cause of new life the cause of of life from death of something existing that did not previously exist will always be nothing less than himself and yet we can say because he has allowed us to take such a wonderful part how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the good news Now, not everybody's going to think your feet are beautiful. Will all believe? No. They won't. Faith comes through hearing. Hearing doesn't come through the word of the preacher. It comes through the word of Christ. Guys, 
You want to be successful in evangelism? Just go preach a Christ-centric gospel. You are by definition successful. For us, success is not necessarily people accepting the good news, though that we pray that they do. Success is the faithful proclamation of the gospel, and we leave the effect up to God For faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And friends, you can trust Christ to be faithful. Let me tell you, if you go out there and you say with Paul that I am not ashamed, but I am eagerly obligated to the gospel, for it is the power of God on display, you can believe that at every turn he will be faithful to you. We see it in Israel. Paul raises the question when he looks at his brothers and his heart is breaking for them. And he says, look, man, has he abandoned his people Israel? And Paul answers in the same manner that he answers when he says, is God unjust? He says, not being. He's not abandoned his people Israel. Man, I said this at a conference one time and it made a a bunch of amillennialists real mad. Let me tell you something. Israel's not a stillborn child. Man, God's promise to them is every bit as faithful as His promise to us. Heaven forbid we believe anything different because that's the promise into which we have been grafted. He's not abandoned his people, Israel, any more than he would abandon me or you. Instead, in the grace of God who has mercy on whom he will have mercy, even though they deserve no mercy, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles like you and me have been grafted in. This is the manner in which the promise has come to us. The result for us means that there is a day coming when we must suffer well, when we must endure to the end in order that it will yield jealousy in the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they look on him whom they pierced. And in that moment, Jew and Gentile together are saved. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Paul says. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Paraphrased, he knows what he's doing. And what he's doing is good. What's it look like? 
Well, if it's acceptable, it looks like this. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Man, I appeal to you. Now, okay, this isn't in the notes today, but just for a moment. I want you to look at the end of Romans chapter 11. Right here in verse 33, I want you to consider the fervency, the zeal. Paul's going to talk about zeal here in just a minute. And the, the, the concept in the Greek literally means to sizzle. I want you to see the fervency and the zeal, the passion that the Apostle is displaying through the Holy Spirit, speaking about the glory of God in the salvation of the Jew and the Gentile. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And out of that fervency and that zeal, out of that passion, Paul makes his appeal. Anybody that says that a concise study of Paulinian literature leads to Stoicism is not reading the same stuff I'm reading. Man, he is burning. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The miracle of salvation that belongs to God it's funny how the Lord brings you to these kind of places because it's came up like four different times this week. The miracle of salvation that belongs to God where he is speaking something into existence that previously did not exist. The miracle that is being done is the creation of sentient beings. The miracle that he's doing is you. He's, he's creating a, a, a living being that is fundamentally more alive than the thing that we called alive before that, that scripture says is dead. And you see it in Paul. You see the passion. You see the drive. You see the desire. Man, this is a being that thinks 
freely for the first time in its entire existence. Man, this is a being that feels. This is a being that is driven not simply by the numbers, but by the heart and desire that drives it to see the glory of God in his gospel. The miracle he's doing is you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 16 through 17, Paul says, From now on, therefore, and the now on is post regeneration. <laughs> From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. Everybody wants to get together and write books about if God is sovereign, how can man be responsible? That's how. It's really not that heavy of an intellectual question. It's just a heavy thing to accept. Man, the thing he's making is not a marionette. He's too big for that. I mean, good grief. Let there be light takes like a half a second to say. Don't you think that if this gospel is the power of God on display, that it's going to be more profound than a puppet on a string? Oh, God is sovereign. Man, he has mercy on whom he wills. He hardens whom he wills. But what he is creating in his mercy and compassion is not a bunch of automatons. What he's creating is life. So, Paul says, since the miracle that he is doing is sentient, that is to say self-aware life, that thinks and understands and knows its creator, and well, as it says in the book of Daniel, those that are wise that know their God. Since he's doing that, then the application for us is pretty straightforward. What we need to do is go be that. Be transformed in the renewal of your mind. Or as the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, In verse 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have been, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near because what you are is alive, because what you are is the new creation, because the miracle that God is doing is you, then go out and be the new creation. Be the one he made you to be. We're not all the same, but we are one body with many members. What's the renewal of your mind supposed to look like? Looks like chapter 12, verse 3 through 8. For by the grace given to you, or sorry, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same functions, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's hang on to that pretty hard, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to your faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. For the glory of God, be the new creation you were created to be. There is a stereotype. And, you know, I can only speak for for my experience here, but my experience is most likely pretty close to yours. Most of us, we all grew up with an American Christianity. Most of us grew up, not all of us, but most of us grew up with Southern fried Christianity. And there is, there is a stereotype that, that we have been inundated with from the time we were this big of, of what a Christian is supposed to look like. And some of that is accurate. Some of that is accurate because it comes from right here. And some of it is inaccurate because it comes from everything out here. The reality is, and the reality is, is the new creation is as much different in the way that it is equipped as you and I are different in the way God built it the first time. One of the things that we say in the United States, or we're used to, is that, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can be anything you want to be. That is a lie. (laughs) That is an absolute lie. (laughs) Let me tell you something, friends. You're going to be what God made you to be. That's what you're going to be. 
But if we just want to get technical with it, it doesn't matter how hard I try as much as I would like to. Rocky, this frame right here won't fit in the chassis of a Formula One car. I can't get in there. Doesn't matter. And man, when we're talking about the new creation, we're talking about an entire different magnitude of created order. According to the grace that you have been given. According to the grace you've been given in its type and in its measure. Francis, can I talk about you this morning? Just a little. I'll be real nice. Now, me and Mama Francis about as different as two people can be. Buddy, we need that woman. We, pro- we need her in ways I don't even understand. You know, and everybody thinks, well, I'm not gifted in this and I'm not gifted in that and, you know, I'm too old to do X or I'm too young to do Y. You're exactly, if you're, if you're born again, you're exactly equipped with what God has that you need to be doing right now. And if we're going to use this as a specific example, let me tell you something. Our young women need to see that. Hey, we got plenty of folks that can wash dishes. What we need is testimony. Man, they need to know what a godly woman looks like. I know I'm embarrassing you. I'll quit. To each according to the proportion of grace that was given them. Man, if, 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 if prophecy is the thing that the Lord gave you, man, it better be according to your faith. He didn't give it to me. Man, I, I've, I've said maybe, uh, you could probably count the prophetic things I've ever said on one hand. And we read that and we think to ourselves, okay, well, if, if I'm going to... You know, if prophecy and proportion your faith. So what I got to do is, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna have something prophetically meaningful to 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 say over someone, then what I got to do is 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 you know put put my head to the my nose to the grindstone. I got to make sure I really believe so I can say it with confidence. Man, that is not what he says. Man, the faith is either there or it isn't. And guess where it comes from? According to Ephesians chapter two, it is the gift of God. So. Know the difference between prophecy and advice. <laughs> yeah, and advice is, well, man, I tell you, listen, Scripture says this and Scripture says that, and, man, I'm, I'm guessing that it probably ought to go like this, but that's between you and the Lord, man. If you're going to speak and say, hey, listen, buddy, here's what you need to know based on what Scripture says, then you better be standing square in the faith that it takes to say it. Otherwise, don't say it. And that's okay. 
Because even if you feel like there's a vacuum that something really needs to be spoken to authoritatively, let me tell you something. If it really needs to be spoken to authoritatively in this whole deal where we are one body but many members, God will give somebody the thing to say. If the miracle He's doing is sentient beings that are just incredibly unique, wonderful things that have thoughts and feelings and gifts, then go be that. Don't try to be somebody else. Don't try to be Mark. Don't try to be Damon. Don't try to be Jim. Let Mark be Mark and Damon be Damon and Jim be Jim. Be what he made you to be. Good grief, guys. He sacrificed his son to make you that. (laughs) He knows what he's doing. Go be it. Be the new creation that he created you to be. Paul doesn't just talk about it in Romans. He talks about it in Ephesians at length. In chapter 4, in verses 11 through 16, Paul writes and he says, I gave, he gave, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Be what he made you to be. Let it fit. Be satisfied with the fact that God knows what he's doing and it's good. Man, you don't have to fulfill the role that your friend fulfills. As a matter of fact, if it's not the role God gave you and you're trying to fulfill it, you're leaving a role that desperately needs to be fulfilled, unfulfilled somewhere else. My wife has certain talents that I'm absolutely devoid of. I mean, it's just not there, folks. Somebody noted after we got married that my shirt started changing more and I wore less black. I never wore black because I was morbid. I wore black because I knew it was a sure bet. Couldn't go wrong. Now I've got somebody that's got an eye for that kind of stuff, see? I know it's a silly example. But it's a profound truth. Man, we got people that the Lord has gifted to do some incredible things. 
The body needs us to be about the business of doing it. It needs you to be the new creation that God made you uniquely to be. Now, guys, look. Y'all know me. This is not the gospel of self-esteem. <laughs> if, if, if we, and if we ever start going that direction, we can go back to chapter 1 and we'll just smack that right down. This is not the gospel of self-esteem. This is the gospel of a holy, ingenious creator that knows exactly what he's doing. He's faithful. We must be faithful to him in service, in our serving. I don't know why anybody thinks that's a humbling gift. I mean, good grief. Christ said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. If teaching, in your teaching, you need to be good at it. And man, we're blessed. I know this isn't the state of the covenant, but I'll speak to it just a little bit here. Man, I knew our children's program was in pretty good shape. I got to tell you, teaching third and fourth grade has absolutely blown me away. Man, our teachers are teaching. If in exhortation, then exhort. And I need you to do it because I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter how hard I try, it only kind of comes across halfway. <laughs> in contribution and your generosity, in leading with your zeal, man, we got to be the kind of people that sizzle. In mercy, in cheerfulness. Now, I won't go so far as to say that you shouldn't be merciful if you do it somewhat begrudgingly. I will say this. If you have to do it somewhat begrudgingly, you need to go get your wheels lined out. <laughs> so Paul says it like this. Let love be genuine. Verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now, we've passed up about four or five things that I would have liked to have talked about the grammar on up to this point. We are going to pause here and talk about it for just a moment. Agape love. Not, not, not the love of warm, fuzzy feelings and affection. Not the way you love your football team or your buddy or your dog. But love that is very specifically by the intention of the will. That desires by intention to do what is the best for the beloved. Even if that's not the best for you. Man, when you talk about agape love, you're talking about a love whose value is not founded in the loveliness of the thing that's loved, but is founded in the loveliness of the lover. 
This is the love that says, you know, it's not best for me to send my son to die for you, but it's best for you, so that's what I'm going to do. Let that love be genuine. (coughs) Literally, it means, I mean, literally, the Greek's a compound word that means without pretending. Let that love be without pretense. Let this love that says, by great intention, I will suffer if I need to. Let it be true. And if it is, here's what it looks like. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast of what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Oh, there's a place for the warm fuzzy. It's not driving the bus. But there's a place that if the intentional one is driving the bus, it will exist too. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Make sure you sizzle. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's what genuine love looks like. If you'll notice, it has a lot to do consistently from verse 9 through verse 13 with, well, I guess what we would call long-suffering and wearing well. And as you look at the verbiage here, it's all in the imperfect tense. It's not just something you do once, but it continues and continues and continues and continues. But Paul takes it further than that. What he describes as genuine love, this acting out of this magnificent, sentient creation that God is producing in you, then moves to what I think you would have to identify as Truly radical love. So let it be genuine, but don't stop there because Christ certainly didn't. Bless those who persecute you. That's tough. I mean, let's be honest, folks. That's tough. It's a lot easier to just... It's a lot easier to just pop somebody in the head that persecutes you. (laughs) This is a profound identity. This is something that did not exist that's being called into existence. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, and man, we need to be. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, I can tell you that it, at the same moment, and I think this is true for, I know it's true for some of you because we've talked about it. 
at the same moment, you can, you can look at what the Lord has done in you as the new creation and go, man, I am just so woefully short in the renewal of my mind. And then simultaneously look at certain very identifiable things and go, whoa, that's crazy because that's not me. Or I guess it is me, but it didn't used to be me. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Quote a, quote a lot of proof texts. <laughs> Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, which is really the only thing you can do. So far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, It is strange, the pressure that is felt by preachers when they're preaching the Scripture. And what, and what I mean by that is this. I mean, there's always the way to glory, don't get me wrong, but, but there, is, there is a social pressure that exists. As a matter of fact, we were taught this, like... Like literally we were taught um, in classes that have names like Preaching 101. We were taught that you always leave people on the up note. If you're doing a sales seminar, that's exactly what you ought to be doing. But we are not those that peddle the gospel that's not who we are. And the thing is, is, is I feel that pressure. I'm like, okay, here, here we're coming to the end of this deal, and what I need to do is make sure there's some, you know, everybody walks away kind of uplifted. The thing is, is that's not where the Holy Spirit lets Paul leave it in chapter 12. Now, there is some uplifting stuff here, but there is definitely some stuff that's uncomfortable as well. I mean, when, you know, when you say stuff like, listen, here's what you do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, if he just stopped there, but he doesn't. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Yikes. I mean, the implication is, listen, 
be merciful to this guy in order to heap burning coals on his head. This is the word of God. <laughs> okay? The answer is this. Trust God, he knows what he's doing. We need to get it into our minds because he doesn't stop there. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The reality is, friends, that there is evil in this world. Man, it's full of it. As a matter of fact, before I was born again, I was it. And so were you. There is evil in this world, and it legitimately needs to be overcome. It legitimately needs to be destroyed. God is equally as good in his wrath against evil as he is good in his mercy to his people. It needs to be overcome. Here's the thing. In wrath, it is not mine or yours to do. It is his to do. Trust him. And let me assure you, he will do it. And he'll do it so much better with so much more vindication than you and I could ever muster that anything that we tried to do in wrath would look paltry in comparison. Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32. When in verse 34 through 43, he says this. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Guys, the wrath he is about to talk about is valuable enough to him that it is something that he sees fit to call a treasure because that's what you keep in the treasury. The reason we get uncomfortable with this kind of stuff is because we inherently know that we have no business speaking this way. This is not ours to do. But man, you can't project you onto him. He's altogether nothing like you. He's altogether nothing like me. He's creating you to be exactly what you need to be. So that though many members, we may have one body, he knows exactly what he's doing. He has created you to be exactly what you need to be. So he says, go do it. And then he says this, trust me that I'm already exactly what I need to be. And what I am is a God whose justice contains both compassion and mercy and hardening and wrath. 
And when the hardening and wrath come, you can better believe it needs to come and you need to trust me to do it. So you just go be good and let me deal with the evil. And deal he does. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. Man, there's one of the most famous sermons that was ever written was <laughs> written off that verse. Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you haven't read it, you should. Paul draws from it. Edwards drew from it. Recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Why? Why? Because, at least partially because, the Lord has a people that He has created, and what they're supposed to be doing is overcoming evil with good. And when you approach evil with good, typically what happens is you get railroaded by evil. And the Lord says, I keep account. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly for the Lord will vindicate his people. Those who have been feeding their hungry enemy and giving water to those that fight against them. The Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. What that means is you've got to be willing to be war slick out. Man, when you're spent, when there's just nothing left, Look to the east. When there's none remaining bond or free. When their strength is gone. Then he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he. And there is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, my sword shall devour flesh with blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice. 
Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and he cleanses his people's land. Friends, there is real evil in this world. Real evil. To some degree, we've all experienced it. Some of us have got a taste for what the really nastier stuff looks like. Trust Him. He knows what He's doing. You can go and be the thing He made you to be. Your love can be genuine. It can be radical. You can love your enemy. And the reason because the reason that you can is because you can trust him to take care of business at the end of the day. And what you will find is that he's going to do one of two things. He will settle the score in judgment. Or, perhaps, when we are so fortunate to see it, He just might let you be the means whereby speaking this very gospel They cease being your enemy and become your brother or your sister in the exact same manner that you ceased being his enemy and became his son or daughter. For he is good. Men are responsible. God is sovereign. He knows exactly what he is doing Trust him to do it. Be what he made you to be, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, things that we have no ability to cope with, but he does. Be genuine. It would be absolutely crazy if he wasn't who he says he is. And praise God he is. So, I'll say this this morning. Man, if you don't know Christ, and I, I mean, I'm not talking about if you don't know who he is, but if, if you do not have the kind of intimate relationship that we've been talking about here that's not some kind of systematic thing that we might put a sticker on and call law, but if you don't actually know him for who he is, let me tell you something. You do not want to be his enemy. You don't. And the beauty of it is is you don't have to be. 
for all who call on the name of the Lord are saved. Let me tell you what, he'll have mercy on whomever he has mercy and he'll have compassion on whomever he has compassion. And that's just how it is. But if you call on him, he will have mercy and compassion on you. He will. Do it. Let's pray.